When I was in college uh, several years back, not too long ago, but long enough uh, to know I'm getting a little bit older, um, I was on this committee called the CAB. And it stood for Campus Activities Board, and hence the term activities. What we did is we helped out with the activities that went on at the college I went to. And one of the, one of the activities that we often helped out at was concerts. You know, there was musicians that came in. I went to a Christian college, and so there was a lot of Christian singers come in, and other times there was just people who were musicians. And one time, a gentleman came by the name of Pinkus Zuckerman. And some of you know classical music, which I'm not a big fan of, but um, classical music, he is one of the leading violinists in the world. And so he came, they were at the college, and uh, they, um, they asked me to be the bouncer, so to speak, you know, obviously because of my size. And um, anyway, what I had to do is I had to stand at the door where he was going to come out and make sure that nobody came in the door and uh, nobody came in to talk to him. And uh, normally a lot of college students love classical music, so, you know... Anyway, um, but anyway, so regardless, so out here I am, you know, we're going in and um, I'm talking to them a little bit and it's, it's kind of stale conversation, but it's, we're doing all right. So we're getting ready to go. And um, so, you know, the, the professor comes up on stage and the light, you know, the lights go down and the lights are just up on stage and he comes up and, and welcomes everybody. And there was about 2,500 people in this place. And they welcome, they welcome everybody, and, they, and he begins to get a litany of all the things this gentleman, Pinko Zuckerman, has accomplished. And he is a, quite a gifted musician. And so then he, he prays, and he says, without further ado, or something to that extent, I can't remember his exact word, he says, please, let's welcome Pinko Zuckerman. Now, here I am at the door, and all I got to do is open up the door and open it up and have him come out. And so, you know, I was in a, you know, open a door. I'd stand behind the door. Well, this lady was back there with me and she goes, John, the, the guy who's the MC, he left something on stage. I go, what do you mean he left something on stage? And he goes, you're going to go, you're going to have to go out there and get it. I said, what? And all of a sudden she just pushes me out there. And here I am, the spotlight's on me. All 2,500 people are waiting for Pinka Zuckerman to come out. And here I come out. Now, Grant had a suit on, so I, you know, I didn't look too bad. So I come out there, I didn't know what I was supposed to do. And so I just kind of said, okay. So I just walked, and I, I waved everybody, and kind of just waved, and, and said, how you, you know, and, this, and I looked, whatever I was supposed to get, and I came back in. And I, I mean, and it's one, I walked out there, it's, it's sweet. This one little lady, um, she goes, is that Pinko Zuckerman? And I, I, I turned, I was like, no, I'm not Pinko Zuckerman, because she was right in the front row. And, um, and I had no idea what to do. And fortunately, the, the guy who was the MC came up and got the microphone, I got on stage, and he came down, and, and the concert went fine. But now that was a very interesting time. Because that was potentially quite embarrassing. And afterwards, somebody came up to you, John, what were you doing? And I, I don't know what I was doing. I just kind of went out there and I tried to make it look like I was doing something. And um, <laughs> it was pretty funny. But and the thing is, though, when I was pushed out there, I had a choice to make. I could either go back in or I could just pretend like I knew what I was doing. And I tried to do that. I had to make a choice. And you and I have to make choices in life. Sometimes you're not on the spot like that. But we all have to make choices. Some are simple and unimportant. Some are complex and extremely important. You know, we choose the shampoo. We choose our soap we use. We choose what we do with our leisure time. Um, we choose, in one sense, where to work, what we're going to major in in college. Um, we choose who we're going to marry, and uh, we make that, which is a more important choice. And uh, we we make a variety of choices. What item that you choose every day is how 
you use your time. We live in time and we live according to time. Let me give you some examples. When I first started cooking, I made Kraft macaroni and cheese out of a box. And I had to look, and I read the directions, and I only could cook the macaroni from 7 to 10 minutes. All right? And that was the time frame that I had to let them cook in the, in the boiling water. Now, when you cook, obviously, there's, we, we live in time. Also, how about driving? How many of us know how far it is in miles from here to Santa Clarita? We all know how far it is in terms of how long it takes, but do we know how far it is in terms of how many miles? Do we know how many miles it is from our house in Burbank or Glendale or the surrounding areas to this church? I mean, I'm sorry, but we, uh, yeah, do we know how much time it is? Probably not. We do know what? How long it takes. How about um, sporting events? Soccer, football, basketball, hockey games are all under time constraints. How about school or work? Those of us in college who've been to college, what do we do? We, we have to take credit hours when we're in school, even elementary and middle school and high school. We, we have classes in, a, in accordance to time. How about work? Many of you punch out, you know, go from a clock from 8 to 5 or 9 to 5. You have an hour, a lunch break. It's a time. We're in time. How about preaching? I know um, many people sometimes evaluate preaching based on how short or how long they go. You know, and sometimes you know, people want to get out when it's 12 o'clock and that's it. And now regardless of the preacher's done. But time is an essential part of our lives. I would propose that as J. Oswald Sanders has stated in his book, Spiritual Leadership, the choice of how you use your time particularly your free time, is one of the greatest indicators of whether you're going to be commonplace or extraordinary for the Lord. Howard Hendricks, a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary and a preacher, and he has a great tape on managing time, he says as he's grown older in the Lord, he says that the greatest barometer of whether or not he is controlled by the Spirit is is by his use of his time. In one one article in a Westminster Theological Journal, the author wrote a um, a piece on the Puritans. And he says that the Puritans, to them, time was a precious commodity. Because evidenced by the fact that they wrote about it and they preached on it. How do you use your time? How should you use your time? The answer to the first question of how you use the time is something that you're going to have to answer yourselves. The the answer to the second question of how should you use your time is what I'm going to answer today. So please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17. Follow along with me as I read. Verse 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Today, you are going to learn three actions that characterize a wise believer. 
so that you truly may be wise, not unwise, and specifically so that you will be a wise steward of your time. We're going to take a look at three actions that characterize a wise believer. And let me give what those three actions are. And then we'll go through them more in depth as I go through the message. But if you are a wise believer, you will first of all, watch your walk. You will watch your walk. Secondly, if you are a wise believer, you will make the most of your time. You will make the most of your time. Number three, you will grasp God's will. If you are a wise believer, you will grasp God's will. So you will watch your walk, you will make the most of your time, and you will grasp God's will. Let's take a look at the first point. If you are a wise believer, you will watch your walk. Look with me here in verse 15. Paul says, therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. A believer's walk is an integral part of his or her life. This theme of walking was integral to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In the book of Ephesians, Paul has, um, he wrote it in a unique way. The first three chapters of Ephesians deal with a believer's position in Christ, their position in Christ. Chapters 4 through 6 deal with a believer's practice. One title of the book could be Practicing Your Position. Or another another one uh, we were taught in seminary is bodybuilding. In other words, you're practicing, you're living out your position in Christ. And so Paul then, he goes here and he begins, chapters 4 through 6, begins to go after a person's walk, a believer's walk in the Lord. Turn with me to chapter 4 and verse 1, and I want to show this for you. In chapter 4 and verse 1, which is the point, the hinge at which the book turns, and this is what Paul says in chapter 4 and verse 1, therefore... I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Note, the very first word is therefore. And when you're starting the Bible and you see the word therefore, you need to ask, what is it there for? All right? It's a little tip when you're studying the Bible. So why is it there? Well, as I just said, the first three chapters are in a a believer's position. So now it says, because of your position in the Lord, this is what you need to do. And he says, you have to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Basically saying this, if there is a scale and you had your position on one side and you had your practice or your walk on the other side, they'd be equal. The scale wouldn't be tipped one way or another. They'd be equal. Our walk is supposed to match our position in Christ. That's what he's saying. And this is how he starts the section on walking. Look with me at chapter 4 and verse 17. And he goes on again about the walk. And Paul says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of your mind. You are commanded to walk in holiness. Turn over with me to chapter 5 and verses 1 and 2. And Paul continues on this theme. He says, Therefore, be imitators of God 
as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Look with me at verses 7 and 8 of chapter 5. We see the same, same thing. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You need to walk in accordance with your position. And that leads us down now to our verse here in verse 15. As he says again, verse 15, therefore, be careful how you walk. Now, you know that a walk is important. I mean, we've seen it already five times. But, but what is a walk referred to? Now, let's let you know, he's not talking about your physical walk. You know, he's not talking about your strut or everything like that, all right? He's not talking how fast you walk. He's not talking about the style you walk, whether you move your arms, you know, or just kind of, you, you know, it's kind of the smooth walk. Not like that, okay? What he's talking about here is your lifestyle, your pattern of life, your behavior. That is what he's getting at. Your walk refers to your patterns of life. Your pattern of your life should match your position in Christ. That is what he's hitting. So now, he's, you're, you're commanded to watch your walk. And, he, and, he, and this is what he says. This is what we need to do in this particular verse. He says, look, look at your walk. Okay? We know a walk's important, but in order to observe whether we're actually walking in accordance with God's will, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to look at it. He says, watch. Watch your walk. He wants us to discern and look at something very closely. And that's something we're supposed to look at is our walk. We are supposed to contemplate it. It is so important for you and I to watch our walk. The look what Paul does in verse 15. He puts an adverb to modify the verb. The adverb is carefully. He says, don't just look, but carefully look at your walk. Like a neural surgeon will look at the nerves and be careful to make sure he operates precisely. So you and I need to look at our lives precisely so that we can walk precisely in accordance with God's will. Like a bomb specialist who tries to defuse a bomb will carefully and very wisely take each step and each cut very, very wisely. So you and I are to carefully observe our walk. That is what he's saying here. Now, you may be asking, John, why is your walk so important? I mean, we, we see it here, but really, why is it so important? Well, let me just give you one reason why. In the life of David, we saw the day when Jim read Psalm 32, that David wrote about how he was forgiven. Well, what was he forgiven from? He was forgiven from his sins that he had committed with Bathsheba when he committed adultery, and, and forgiven of his sins when he, he murdered, in one sense, her husband. And when Nathan came to David to confront him of his sin, this is what Nathan said in 2 Samuel 12, verse 14. Because by this deed, that is his sinful deed, you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Because his walk was not above reproach, he had given his enemies of the Lord an occasion to blaspheme. That is a serious thing. Sadly, many believers have given unbelievers much ammunition because we don't watch carefully our walk. 
A stained walk will cause unbelievers to see a stained view of our gracious Lord and Savior. We need to carefully look at our walk. How are you doing in that? You know, my wife comes home from a haircut, and she says, John, how does my hair look? I mean, and you husbands know this. I mean, you're not going to, if you just give a superficial look, oh yeah, it looks great, and just kind of go back, you know you're going to hear about it later. Oh, you don't know, you don't ever care about me. You ever care about me? You know, you know, no, what do you do? You got to say, oh, yes, it looks great. Um, and let me take a look at this side. You know, you want to take a look. You want to make sure there's no split ends, you know, or hair color is just right, and so on and so forth, right? You know, just like that, that's what we have to do with our walk, because it is so serious. It is a very serious thing. So now, here you are, you say, okay, John, I got it. I'm going to be carefully watching my walk. But what am I looking for? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look down here in verse 15, all right? This is what he says. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. You need to carefully observe to see if your walk is wise, not unwise. This is what a wise believer does. He watches his walk to see whether it is wise. But what does it mean if a person's unwise versus wise? One well, unwise man is one who is foolish, who has no insight into the things that pertain to God and salvation. He basically, he has no insight into the nature of anything. An unwise person is one who basically is not aiming at anything, and he has no idea how to get there. A wise person, though, is he bases his life on the knowledge of Scripture. He, he, he draws his life upon that, and then he actually acts upon the Scripture. Wisdom is not just knowledge per se. It is knowledge acted out in our lives. This is what a wise person does. So therefore, you have to look at your life and say, am I acting like that? Is my walk, my lifestyle, my patterns of my life, is it reflect that I'm in accordance with the Word of God? Remember what I said before, your position should match your walk. What's so amazing is as a believer, you have been given wisdom. In 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul says this, you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Just as in Christ, God miraculously makes us immediately righteous, sanctified, and redeemed, he also makes us immediately wise. Now granted, we grow in wisdom, just like Jesus grew in wisdom, but in our, we have a position in Christ, we have wisdom. And we have to act in accordance with that as God's children. So, a wise believer will watch his walk. But how does this really look in our life? I mean, how does a wise lock really, really look? Well, that leads us to our second point because that's what exactly what Paul does. He says, a wise walk will be one that makes the most of your time. A wise believer will make the most of his time. Look with me here in verse 16. Paul says, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Those who are wise will have a right attitude of time and in accordance to time. The word there in your translation, it may say make, it could say redeem. The word there, it refers to buying up. 
That's what the word is. Buying up all your opportunities. It, it, it gives the essence of somebody going out to the marketplace and they buy up all the opportunities they have. They buy up everything in the marketplace, basically. It, it refers to someone who, who may try to buy up a slave. And that's where we get the word redeem. And what he's saying here is we need to redeem or buy up all the time that we have and devote it to the Lord. We are to make the most of our opportunities, exhausting all the possibilities. When I was still single and, and dating my uh, wife and, and engaged to her, um, I didn't have much chance to see her. So I would try to drive out or give her a call and talk to her. I'd try to snatch up the time I had to buy all my opportunities. Why? I wanted to hang out with her. All right? And, um, and that's what I did. Believers will act wisely by snapping up every opportunity. That's what it says. Look here, verse 16. Make the most of your time. I think a better translation would be opportunity. Not necessarily time in the sense that we know. Not as time as seconds and minutes and days and hours and that. But in opportunities that, like a, a, and a fixed season. One commentator says this. God has set boundaries to our lives. And our opportunity for service exists only within those boundaries. It is significant that the Bible speaks of such times being shortened, but never of their being lengthened. A person may die or lose an opportunity before the end of God's time for him, but he has no reason to expect his life or his opportunity to continue after the end of his predetermined time. We need to make the most of our opportunities because we don't know how much time we're going to have. And guess what? We can't get time back. Trying to get time back is like trying to take the water that goes over Niagara Falls and take it back up. It's just not going to happen. We can't get the time back. We have opportunities for service in our lives that we only have once. What are you going to do with that time? John MacArthur states that having sovereignly bounded our lives with eternity, God knows both the beginning and the end of our time on earth. As believers, we can achieve our potential in his service only as we maximize the time he has given us. Hmm. Moses in Psalm 90 says, teach us to number our days. To number our days. You may say, how morbid? We're going to try to figure out how much time we have left? That's kind of morbid. How inspiring. Wow, we only have this much time left? Wow, we got to get on it. Listen to this, this gentleman. There was a guy by the name of Philip Melanchthon. He was a, a reformer in the 16th century. And every day, he kept a record of how much wasted time he had. And every day, he would go to the Lord and ask forgiveness for his wasted time. It is no wonder that God used them in great ways. How do you use your time? Paul didn't want us to waste time. One commentator says, apart from willful disobedience to God, the most foolish thing a believer can do is fritter away his time in trivia and in half-hearted service to the Lord. One author commentating on the Puritans said this, To the Puritans, time was as uncertain as it was precious. 
And procrastination, if not the worst of all sins, was the most foolish and could well become the most fatal. I remember when I grew up, um, you know, I used to have this theme, you know, why, why do today what you could put off to tomorrow? I was unwise. I was very unwise. When we procrastinate, we, we, we let precious moments, precious opportunities to go by. Paul wanted his, his, his fellow people in the church, not only here in Ephesus, but in Colossians and in Galatia, to make the most of their time. And God wants us all to make the most of your time. Well, what are some ways we can do that? Turn with me to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, and we'll take a look at one way that we can snatch up, basically use all of our time we can for the glory of the Lord. This is one example that Paul gives us. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 5. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. He calls the church at Colossae and ultimately us to conduct ourselves with wisdom toward unbelievers, making the most of the opportunity. Unbelievers are dying in their sins. They're on their way to hell. They don't have much time left. You yourself as believers may not have that many more times to talk to them about the Lord. Those who are unbelievers, those who have never repented and placed their faith in the Lord are on their way to hell. And Paul's saying, listen, you need to conduct yourself with wisdom towards outsiders. Have a proper walk before those who are unbelievers. Make the most of your time. How are you doing with that? You know, let's just take a time, a moment here to look at our country. We live in the United States of America, a great country. We live in a, in a country that although sometimes we get frustrated at what people say because, you know, the freedom of speech, we have freedom here in America. You can talk to somebody about the Lord. You can evangelize. I can stand here in the pulpit and proclaim that Jesus is king. We can proclaim there's only one way of salvation. And I am not expecting right now to somebody to come in and kill me or to banish me from this country. In America, we have freedom to do that. This is not so around the world. In my office, I have a, a map of the world. And on this map, um, there's all the countries that have um, either killed Christians or persecute them are shaded in. And America is not one of them. We have time and opportunities in this country that other people don't have in other countries. We need to make the most of it. Now, I'm not saying that we can't go to those countries and because they're persecution, not at all. Because Paul tells Timothy, all those who live godly will suffer persecution. But what I'm saying is we have freedoms here that we can do that. You know, when I was growing up, I always thought I'd live in Philadelphia. I never thought I'd be out here in California. It never even crossed my mind. I just thought I'd always live on the East Coast. And consequential, I always thought I'd have all the time in the world to talk to my friends back in high school. Talk to the, the, my, my, the people that I grew up with, my neighbors on that street about the Lord. But God had other plans for me and he brought me out here. And I don't 
have those opportunities per se. Who knows how long you're going to live here in Burbank, in North Hollywood, in Glendale, in Sun Valley. Who knows how long you're going to live on the street you live. You don't know what God's going to do. You need to snatch up those opportunities to evangelize right now. You need to use it for the Lord because you have no idea what's going to happen. God may decide to to, to transfer your job or something may come up. And we need to make the most of the opportunities, particularly in evangelism, particularly in, in living a right life before unbelievers. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 6, and we'll take a look at one other before we turn back to Ephesians about how we can make the most of our opportunities. But Galatians chapter 6. And Paul, at the end of, the, end of this book, he says this, verse 10 of chapter 6, So then, while we have opportunity... Let us do good to all people and especially to those who are the household of the faith. We are to do good to all, particularly those who are brothers and sisters in the Lord. When you have an opportunity to encourage someone by writing them a note, take that opportunity. When you have an opportunity to pray for someone or so on and so forth, take the opportunity. Time is short. And turn back with me to Ephesians 5. One of the reasons we need to make the most is because time is short and we don't know how much time we're going to have. And there's another reason. And this is what Paul tells us in verse 16. He says you need to make the most of your time. Why is that, Paul? Because the days are evil. They're corrupt. We can be honest here. I don't need to convince you that the days are corrupt out there. I don't need to convince you. We need to live here in L.A., in Hollywood. All right, close by. We know things are corrupt. We know things are evil. You know, when I was, uh, when I was going through seminary, I worked, at this, uh, I worked in a laboratory, and uh, we developed um, tests um, uh, so that pharmaceutical companies could test their drugs. And we worked with pharmaceutical companies, and we developed and, and, and ran um, tests to work with drugs. And um, um, all the people that were there had masters and PhDs, um, don't, I don't know how I got in there, but something, obviously the Lord opened it up. But when I was there, I was working with them. And a lot of things that came up were we, we dealt with evolution. We talked about creation. And um, there's one guy in particular I talked to. We had a conversation about evolution versus creation. And after we, got talk, after we talked for a while, he actually admitted to me and conceded that, you know what? You're right, John. I don't, I, don't, I don't necessarily think evolution is true. Obviously, the Lord is working on his heart. But then he came back with something that blew me away. He says, John, there may... The earth may not have evolved, but let me tell you something. Humanity is evolving. I said, really? He said, yeah. He says, people are actually getting better in their morality. I said, I, I, what? I, I mean, I just shook my head. I couldn't believe it. And so now, I mean, I'd had ammo. You know, I, you know, I was ready to fire. No, I, you know, I was ready to talk to him. And, um, you know, and I, said, uh, I said, you know, there's verses in the Bible that talks about man's just getting worse. And we talk through that. And I couldn't believe it. But that was what, his, his, that's what, what he thought about humanity. Let me tell you something. The days are getting evil. But why does the fact that the days are evil cause us then to make the most of opportunities? Like how do those two relate? Well, listen to what one person said. 
We have to act upon our opportunities because the world continually opposes us and seeks to hinder our work for the Lord. We have little time and much opposition. Because the days are evil, our opportunities for freely doing righteousness are often limited. When we have opportunity to do something for his name's sake and for his glory, we should do so with all that we have. How God's heart must be broken to see his children ignore or half-heartedly take up opportunity after opportunity that he sends to them. Homer, one commentator says this, the blacker the night, the more important is the light. It is a dark day out there. And we have the light from the word of God. Remember, Paul told us in Ephesians 5, 8, that we are children of light. And just like a person cannot see in a cave without a light, so an unbeliever cannot make his way through this earth and in a proper perspective without the light of God's word. How are you doing with that? Let me give you some practical suggestions on how to make the most of your time. We looked at so far evangelism. We looked at also just basically doing good what are some practical suggestions? Some things that I, in my own life, I just, God's been graciously convicting me of. And one thing I want to point out is this. First of all, even though you and I are different, we have different eyes, we have different ears, you know, different hair color, we're different, you know, height, we weigh different amounts, you know, there's something we all have in common. We all have 24 hours in a day. The president of the United States has 24 hours in a day. The governor of this state has 24 hours in a day. Every person that you can imagine has 24 hours in a day. They don't have 25 hours. They don't have 23 hours. They have 24 hours. Now, why do I point that out? Well, because we, always, we know people who can maximize their 24 hours in such a way that they do so much stuff, more so than other people who, who don't practically and, make them, and, and, and wisely live out their time. So let me give you some examples. First of all, Evaluate your use of time. That is the very first thing we need to do. How are you using your time? In Ephesians 2.10, God, it, it says that God has prepared for us good works that we would walk in them. We have all the time that we need to walk in the good works that God has prepared for us. We have all the time in the world to do the will that God has for your life and for my life. Understand that. So then you have to say, okay, I need to evaluate my time. I need to, you need to look at your time again, kind of like the point one. That's the first thing you need to do. One commentator says this. Suppose that we allot ourselves a generous eight hours a day for sleep. Okay? Now, some of you may wish you had eight hours a day for sleep. All right? But just say, okay, we have eight hours a day for sleep. All right? So how many hours is that a week that you take up sleeping? Eight times seven is 56 hours, okay? So there's 56 hours that are gone. Now, next, I'll give you three hours a day for eating and for talking at the dinner table, all right? So then that means three times seven is 21. So you have 21 and 56 is 77, right? Okay, I think my math is right here, okay. Then finally, I'll give those of you who work or you're at the home, okay, you're working, we'll give you 10 hours a day at your job, and for driving. 
Now, some of you may be 20 hours based upon, you know, out here in California, because I understand the freeways, all you do is just, you, you hang out. And um, like somebody, you could buy order pizza on some freeways and actually get it because you're, you're there for so long. Anyway, um, so, we, so we have, you know, 10 hours a day for five days a week. That's another 50 hours. So there's 24 hours a day times seven. That's 168 hours a week. With Subtract all that. You still have 41 hours in a week. That is a lot of time. You need to evaluate your use of time. And as I mentioned before, the way you choose to use that time will determine whether your life is commonplace or extraordinary for the Lord. How are you going to use it? So evaluate it. See what's going on. After you evaluate it, then this is the next thing I I encourage you to do. Make a list of your priorities. Here's why I say that. As Howard Hendricks in his tape that he wrote on managing time, he says a lot of times people, there's good things that people can do, there's better things people can do, and there's best, the best things people can do. A lot of times the good takes the place of the better, and the better takes the place of the best. And if we don't have our priorities down, we can end up just doing good things instead of doing the best things in our lives. So we need to go to the scriptures And time will permit me now to go through all that, but we need to enlist our priorities. What does God call us to do with our lives? Look at priorities in terms of our relationship to God, relationship to others, and then from there, you know, our spouse, our children, the church, at work, and so on and so forth. You need to look at your priorities. So once you evaluate what you're doing with your time, then once you do your priorities, this is the next thing. Another another, um, suggestion, take those priorities and enact a plan, put it down on a schedule that you will actually live out those priorities in your life in accordance with your priorities. Put them down. Another practical suggestion, do it. Practice it. You know, if you put it down, if you put down what you're going to do, do it. One person says this, it is common not to finish what we begin. Even in the familiar opportunities of everyday Christian living, those who are truly productive have mastered the use of the hours and days of their lives. Whether in the artistic, business, personal, or spiritual realm, no one can turn a dream into reality or fully take advantage of opportunity apart from making the most of his time. Napoleon, the leader of France, knew this well. He said that in every battle that he has ever been in, there's a 10 to 15 minute gap where the whole outcome of the battle rests upon. And he had to make the most of his opportunity at that time. Or in other words, they were going to lose the battle. A lot of times we don't act upon our schedule. We don't act upon what we're going to do. J. Oswald Sanders in his book, Spiritual Leadership, says this. He talks about procrastination. And he says this, Procrastination, the thief of time, is one of the devil's most potent weapons for defrauding us of eternal heritage. The habit of putting off is fatal to spiritual leadership. Its power resides in our natural reluctance to come to grips with important decisions. Making decisions and acting upon them always requires moral energy. But the passing of time never makes actions easier. Quite the opposite. 
Most decisions are more difficult a day later, and you may also lose an advantage by such delay. The nettle will never be easier to grasp than now. And obviously in that statement, we want to be wise in terms of there is times where we're patient, but we cannot procrastinate. Because basically we're just letting it, we're letting time and our, our opportunities go by. These are some of these instructions, I mean, there's some things that I'd love you to do that would help you make the most of your, your, most of your opportunities. Another one I'll just put in here, plan ahead. Now, why do you say that? Well, interruptions come. And you know how it is. If you plan to, to get someplace right at the time you get there, what happens? All of a sudden there's an accident or, you know, there's construction and you get there later. So you plan ahead and account for those things. And this is, this is something, you know, I'm, I'm working on daily in my own life. Interruptions come, so plan ahead. And just another thing that's popped in my mind, in your list of priorities, um, schedule rest, schedule a relaxation time in there. You know, when, I, when, I'm, when I'm talking up here, I could, I could try to sensationalize and just say, okay, if you're not, if you're not moving 24 hours a day, then, then you're not making the most of your time. There is wisdom in planning rest. We even see in, the, in, the, in what God did on his creation, on the seventh day he rested, there was a Sabbath day rest. There is a, an element where there's wisdom where you plan rest, you plan relaxation. So that's, so that's another one just to put on in there. But those are some, there's some helpful hints to make the most of your time. The greatest example of this is Jesus Christ. In Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 35, and you don't have to turn there, again, Mark gives us a day in the life of Jesus. And just listen to what Jesus did. It states that he, that he taught, he, he preached, all right, in the synagogue, which definitely takes a lot of time and a lot of energy. Then, while he was doing that, he cast out a demon. After he cast out a demon, he taught, he went over to Peter's house, and he healed Peter's mother-in-law. After he had dinner, he, 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 he healed Peter's mother-in-law. It says that the whole city came to the house. And what did the whole city come for? Talk about an interruption. You know, you know he wasn't going to hang out with the disciples that night. I mean, the whole city came. And they wanted him to heal people. They wanted him to cast out demons. So he went ahead and did that. It says, it says in the next morning he got up and he went away and he prayed. That all took place in a 24-hour period. Jesus only had a little over three years to launch a worldwide enterprise. And when it was done, he said, it is finished. He was never in a hurry. Even though there were continual pressures, continual interruptions, and continual persecution, he always had time to do his Father's will. He knew his objectives and his plan, and he did it. He always did the will of his Father. Is that you and I? Do you know your priorities, and do you act upon them? Many people have wasted time. I, I think about the people that were in Noah's day. Here Noah is building an ark with his sons for 120 years. 120 years is quite a long time, of quite an opportunity for a person to repent. And what happened to them? Well, the unbelievers had to sit there and watch it rain and see them safe in an ark when they were out there flooding or dying in a flood. They wasted their opportunity to repent. Judas, I mean, he had three years with Jesus. 
And he didn't use those opportunities for him. Unbelievers who die as unbelievers will miss their opportunity. They will never again have an opportunity to repent. If you are an unbeliever today, you need to turn from your sin and place your faith in the Lord because you never know what's going to happen in your life. And believers, we don't know how much longer we'll have the opportunity to do the things we have. Physical disability may stop, hinder us. Just time and sense will hinder us. Our location may hinder us. We need to use the opportunities we have. If you are sitting here and realizing that you have let time slip away, in other words, you, you haven't filled up the leaks, you know what I'm saying? You haven't, you haven't plugged them up. I encourage you to repent and beg God for forgiveness. And just as we read in Psalm 32, it is a it is blessing to be forgiven. Now, I know because you guys love the word of God and you're hungry to make the most of all your opportunities, you may be saying, okay, I'm ready to go. I'm using all 24 hours. I'm not going to sleep for anything, okay? I'm, I'm just getting out there. Now, if you went ahead and did that, potentially you would be foolish. And so this is what Paul does. He says, okay, this is how you make the most of your time. Let me, let me give you a little further. This, is, this leads us to our third point, And we'll just hit this point very quickly. And that is a wise believer will grasp God's will. A wise believer will grasp God's will. Because the danger is so great, the wickedness so appalling, the opportunity so precious, and because constant watchfulness, earnest effort, and unwavering zeal are so necessary, do not be absurd. On the contrary, understand what the will of the Lord is, that is, of the Lord Jesus. If you understand what the, the Lord's will is, you won't be foolish. You won't be running here and there all over the place, right? Like a chicken with his head cut off. You know, you won't be doing that. You'll be making wise decisions. You are, you are to understand what the Lord's will is. And do not be foolish. In other words, don't be stupid. Now, what is the Lord's will? <laughs> well, this is, a, this is pretty a heavy thing. And we don't have time specifically to go through all the Lord's will in one sense. In one sense, I'll say this. The Lord's will is what is, is in the Bible. This is a self-revelation of what God once done. Now, specifically for you and I, how can we know the will of our lives? And let me give you a couple things to help you know what the will is for your life. And if you want to read more on this, there's a book by John MacArthur. It's called Found God's Will. And it talks about this. And the first thing um, that you know if you're in the will of the Lord is salvation. In 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 4, it says that God's desire is for, pers- for people to be saved. As a believer, you know that you're in his will. Secondly, his will is that you be spirit-filled. Spirit-filled. In Ephesians 5, 18, the verse following this one, Paul says that he wants a person to be filled with the Spirit. He wants them to be controlled by the Spirit, which is a further explanation of his will here. And so the idea is if you're saved and you're being controlled by the Spirit, you're in his will. Thirdly, if you're sanctified, you're in his will. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in verse 3, Paul says to the Thessalonians, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Your daily growth in the Lord. You're continually setting apart yourself from sin and becoming holy. So if you're saved, 
You're being controlled by the Spirit. You're being sanctified. You're in the will. Let me give you a couple others. Submission. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 15... 1 Peter 2, 13 through 15, he says if you, he, his will is for us to be submissive. So go ahead and go there and read that when you have a chance. Another one, suffering. The will of God for you may include suffering. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 20 and in three seventeen, the will of God may be for you for suffering. So one final one, be thankful. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything give thanks for this is the will of God. Exactly. So if you're saved, you're spirit-filled, you're sanctified, you're, submit, you're submitting, you may be suffering, and you're thankful, guess what, guess what God's will is for your life? Go do what you want to do. That's, that's what it is. Because if you're saved, and you're controlled by the Spirit, and you're sanctified, and, you're, and you go all these things, you're going to be in complete accordance with God's will. And if you understand that, and you're in that position, you're going to make the most of your time. Your decisions of how you use your time then will be for the God's glory. When a person is saved, sanctified, submissive, suffering, spirit-filled, and thankful, he is already in God's will. In other words, when we are what God wants us to be, he is in control and our will is merged with his will. And he therefore gives us the desires he has planted in our hearts. Wise believers will watch their walk, make the most of their time, and grasp God's will. The Ephesian believers lived in a wicked society. Less than 100 years after Paul wrote the Ephesian epistle, Rome was persecuting Christians. They persecuted them continually. Believers were burned alive. They were thrown to wild beasts. They were brutalized in countless other ways. For the Ephesian church, the evil times were going to become more and more evil. Later on in the book of Revelation... The Lord commended the church at Ephesus for its good works, for its perseverance and resistance to false teaching. But he warned them that they had forgotten their first love. Sadly, though, the church eventually ceased sometime during the second century. So they failed to heed Paul and the Lord's advice to them. Instead of helping redeem the evil days in which it existed, the church fell prey to them. May this never be said of you. Be careful then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Redeeming the time, for the days are evil. We are closer to the return of the Lord and the end of opportunity. Live each day wisely, and that is how you need to use your time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are such a gracious redeemer. Jesus, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, who is the King of kings and Lord of all. And it says that you, you who knew no sin became sin for us. Lord, in Ephesians, we get to see of our wonderful position in you that only came because of you not of our works that were saved. 
And Lord, I pray that we will all walk in a manner worthy of our calling, that we will use our time for you. Please give us a passion for unbelievers. Help us to love them. Help us to evangelize them, Lord, because we can't evangelize in heaven, so cause us to do it now. Lord, help us to love other believers and to serve you in your body. Father, I pray that any unbelievers here that you may save them today. We do praise you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.